Let's start. Um, um, Cheryl, I'm sorry. Her name's Jennifer. Jennifer. I'm not going to, just Jennifer. Um, and was this expected? Yeah. Anybody else? I'd like to pray for my friend Jane, who also is uh, suffering from cancer, not only for healing, but for emotional. Doc, what's the name of the young woman Amy asked us to pray for and her mom? Vicki was her? Shelby. And Shelby? Yeah. It's so good to see. Um, is it George? George, it's good to see you again. What to say? We've been praying for you. The, the thought of him being by himself is enough to make me pray. <laughs> there, there was a colleague. There was there was a colleague of mine at UD. Um, I'm doing to name names, but when his wife would say or leave because Suzanne, this was ages ago when her aunt was alive and she would visit her, you know, occasionally. And I probably asked him, you know, how are you doing? Probably with an idea, can we bring a meal or something? How are you doing when she's away? And he said, when she's away, I get psychotic. <laughs> but that's probably a pretty good description of some of us. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, how good you are, how good you are. Um, God, that you loved us when we didn't deserve it, um, that you continue to love us when we don't. Um, what an amazing God that we could make, put anything before you is a, something of a shock. Um, forgive our sins, please pardon us, our human weaknesses, you knew them. It's amazing for me sometimes to contemplate Godhead changing. Um, God's your Father, you, the Spirit, are all perfect, one with each other. How you could have added anything, but certainly what you did add was suffering and a direct experience of our sins. So you know them, God, you know them far beyond our own powers of knowledge. You knew them as a God. So um, to love us still in the depths of these sins, how good you are, um, how... Um, a great sorrow it leaves us with and a great gladness, um, a great glad gratitude that, um, that we have so much to live for in the love that you've given us. Strengthen us in our efforts, um, particularly in sorrows and losses, and maybe most especially dealing with our own sins, to always be hopeful, glad, trusting in you. I ask a special blessing on Jennifer, receive her into your kingdom. Um, um, let her know the joy of being in your presence. If there's a time in purgatory, let our prayers help her. And I've said this before, so often priests will say a prayer and pray for the poor souls in purgatory, and both Suzanne and I look at that differently. If you're in purgatory, if she's in purgatory, she has every reason to be glad, <laughs> whatever penance she's taking on, so let her be in joy, whether she's on her way to you or in your presence. Um, let her know joy. 
let Cheryl's and Paul's hearts be comforted and everybody else who knew her. Um, oh, sorry. Um, see, see. Jane. Jane. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, and who, who has cancer? Cancer. Yes, we, we were talking late in the night last night. She's having a hard time coming. Yeah. Can you give a stage? Do you know? It's a three or a four. It's Jane. Jane. Yeah. Be with Jane in um, this burden, this ordeal that she's going through right now. It should be a reminder to all of us to be more grateful. Um, our One of our grandsons broke his arm and will be in a cast, and my response is Chesterton's. He wrote an essay called The Advantages of Having One Leg. When we lose something, it makes us grateful for how much we take for granted life. So, you know, in all these examples of people who are struggling with um, diseases and sometimes debilitating, let us all be more grateful, glad for what we have. And if we get them, help us to see them as a grace. I know that will come hard. Help all of us to see it as a grace to know that you invite us into a suffering to take us closer to your cross so that our loves grow closer to your own. Let that be for Jane and for Anne um, in her heart. Um, <laughs> ask for a special blessing for strangers. Um, would you come in here? Come in here. No, don't stop. Stop. Come in here and join us. You think you're going to get away with something here? Then you're looking at the wrong person. Um, we are grateful to be together again. Um, Dostoevsky's prophetic in so many ways. He's, he's going to uncover us all probably more than anybody we've read up to this point. So I ask a special grace that everybody take a pleasure in knowing that in whatever he does to reveal us more deeply to ourselves, it's a grace. It's a rare gift to us. So I ask um, that we all um, give ourselves um, to reading closely and well and um, being grateful for what we're given for the courage of people like Dostoevsky. We offer the, oh, sorry, yep, yep. Ask for a special um, grace for Shelby and her mom. Her mom just decided not to continue with um, the radiation for cancer. Um, and her daughter's a little bit concerned. Her mom wouldn't do that with, I mean, sometimes science keeps us alive. When there's so little reason for living. It's a tough decision. Be with Vicki in the choice that she's made. Um, let her be strengthened in her decision, in her trust in you, whatever happens, and help quiet Shelby's heart. Um, know that she's in good hands with you. So we offer all of these prayers, uh, ask for a special prayer too, or a grace for our son Christopher in the struggles that he's facing right now. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. It's good to see you again. <laughs> I hope you know that with the 
coals that I heap on everybody's heads out there. But um, let's start. You put this. Um, I think I need to be able to get it. Am I getting it? Oops. Quick, let me quick. Thanks. I'm going to stay with the Shakespeare sonnets that we began last week for a few weeks. And there's, a, there's an underlying motive, and I don't think the full implications of it are going to become clear in, until late in Dostoevsky, but I hope they do then. Is it on? Get it on? Okay. Can you all hear me okay? Michelle? Oh boy. Yeah. No, 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 that's okay. You guys may have to move up. That would be a pleasure for me. Um, I'm going to continue with the Shakespeare sonnets for a couple of weeks. It's not on. Um, for reasons that I think will become clearer in time, you know, the implications of them. But let me start tonight with a sonnet. We're going to, so just keep this packet, this collection of poems for the next few weeks, and I hope it'll become clear and clear as we go. Remember we've done Hopkins, and this is not a poetry class, so I'm not going into it deeply, but remember, Hopkins very often writes in what's called the Italian sonnet. Eight lines, six lines. An octave, a sestet. Eight six. With rhyming patterns, appropriate, okay? In the octave, he generally presents an experience as it happened, immediately to our senses. A bird flying, whatever it is, a farm, lights going off, whatever he's, spring breaking out everywhere. And then in the sestet, he reflects on it. So what he's showing is something um, reflective of our nature. We see things with our senses, we experience them, a bird flying, but we see in his reflection that there's more to see than just what our senses present. So when he reflects on the bird, he sees a connection between that bird in its, wind, in its hovering, when it, when it, stop, when it um, what's it called, um, breaks, buckles, thanks. When the bird holds the wind, and for a moment, it's as if he masters the air, he's still, he's not driven by it, he masters it, there's a buckling. And in that moment, Hopkins finds Christ. So he finds Christ in a bird. Do our senses give us that? No, they do not. To our senses, we see just the way a dog would. There's a bird in the air. But the mind can see something the senses can't. So when he reflects on that, he finds Christ. And in the sestet, he makes that clear, and then he brings in other analogies to Christ. The fire going out, and the farmer working his lamb. Slow down, Sillian, um, break gold vermilion, you know, the fire, the coals breaking, the, the farmer plowing until he takes that clay dirt and refines it so much that the dirt begins to glow. It's like a light begins to emanate 
from the dirt. So he's finding Christ everywhere. It's one of the things we've been doing all along, to see that the Christ is everywhere. The problem is with the world. The problem is with us. We think we see because our eyesight is so good, when in fact we don't. We need as much healing as the blind man in the, in the scriptures, right? We need to see, and for that, we need help. And the poets, as I've been saying, give us that help. They, they help us to see Christ where ordinarily we don't find him. The same thing is going on with Shakespeare, except Shakespeare is written in what has become known as the Shakespearean sonnet. The Shakespearean sonnet has three quatrets, not an octave, or sorry, three quatrains, three quatrains, kind of getting so far away from this. It's been so long. Three quatrains, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, you know, rhyme schemes, each one has a different one. And then he ends with a conclusion. So what he's doing is similar to Hopkins. And this is what's amazing, and this is where, what you need to absolutely not forget. He's giving us three examples of something present to our senses. This happened, this happened, this happened. But in this case, it's three different examples. And then he concludes in a couplet. So whether people, most people don't even see this. What he's doing is showing the being, the being of things. That all things are tied together, or he could not make that conclusion the way he does, because that occlusion, that conclusion applies to three different things. So he's aware of the being, the interrelation, the interrelatedness between things. So he's he's clarifying the senses, he's helping us to see the way Hopkins does, but then he makes a conclusion, and that conclusion shows all three things, even though they seem discrete and unrelated are related. That there's a being connecting them. We know that being as the Logos, as God. The Logos is present everywhere in creation. Can we see it? One of the whole purposes of this work we've been doing together is to find Christ, to see that Logos everywhere. Is that clear? Three quatrains, they all seem unrelated, discrete, and then the conclusion shows they're all related. They're all connected. By what means, by what power are they related? They all share in being. They're all one with the Logos. They help make intelligible that the Logos is everywhere. The poet just helps us to see. Is that clear? No? <laughs> Come on, Mike, I'm counting on you. <laughs> Tell your son I miss him. Okay, the first sonnet. Sonnet 65. Since brass nor stone nor earth nor boundless sea, but sad mortality o'ersways their power, how with this rage shall beauty hold a plea whose action is no stronger than a flower? How can we love the beauty of those things when, um, is everybody clear? Brass is strong, stone is strong, earth is boundless sea. It's not undying. Um, so all beauty is fleeting. No matter how strong a thing is, iron, brass, stone, it does not matter. Right? Nothing can outlast its mortality. We're all dying 
so many weeks we offer prayers for people, loved ones that have died. We're all dying. We're not going to be here sometime soon, whatever that day is. How with this rage shall beauty hold a plea? How can beauty hold a plea, say, save me, protect me, my beauty, whose action is no stronger than a flower? Oh, how shall summer's honey breath hold out against the rackful siege of battering days? How shall the beauty or sweetness of summer hold out? Days are going. The flowers that are out will die. If uh, birds are sucking honey, you know, suckle or flowers, or it's all going to stop. Winter's going to be here shortly. Whatever's going on right now will stop, just like all of us. How shall summer's honey breath hold out against the rackful siege of battering days? When rocks impregnable are not so stout, nor gates of steel so strong, but time decays, time decays everything. We're all, the minute we're born, that's Hamlet. Remember this from Hamlet in the graveyard. That was the gesture who was with Hamlet when he was a boy. Here he is in the graveyard looking at him and he's looking at the skull. And he says, we've been dying from the moment we were born, every one of us. Mortality hangs over us. O fearful meditation, where, alack, shall time's best jewel from time's chest lie hid? Where will we hide those things most beautiful to protect them from death? Where can we hide them? Name a place. Or what strong hand can hold his swift foot back? Oh, God. Fifteen years ago, I could move pretty agilely. I think you've all noticed that's not true anymore. What strong hand can hold his swift foot back? Or who his spoil of beauty can forbid? What woman who takes her beauty for granted can hold on to it? Oh, none unless this miracle have might that in black ink my love sh may still shine bright. Oh, none, nothing can hold it back. Nothing unless this miracle have might that in black ink my love may still shine bright. What's he saying in the conclusion? He hopes his words will last. Yeah, is everybody following? There's only one place, <laughs> even if you've been, there's only one place, it's in poetry. It's in poetry, and he calls it a miracle. That is the one place in which things that are, things we love that are in front of us can be preserved. Because we can pick up Homer, who died 3,500 years ago, or 3,000 years ago, right? We can read about the Trojan War that took place 3,500 years And we can still experience that today as if we're going on today. And more importantly for me, and you know this, we can experience and realize what's going on in the Trojan War with everybody fighting for booty and thinking their honor depends on how much wealth they have is exactly what's going on today. So we have a way of holding on to the most extraordinary things, truth, beauty, goodness, in poetry. Okay? Any questions? I'm going to read it and then we're going to Dostoevsky, okay? Just for a reading. Since brass nor stone, nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality, or sways their power, how with this rage shall beauty hold a plea whose action is no stronger than a flower? 
Oh, how shall summer's honey's breath hold out against the rackful siege of battering days, when rocks impregnable are not so stout, nor gates of steel so strong, but time decays? O oh, fearful meditation, where, alack, shall time's best jewel from time's chest lie hid? Or what strong hand can hold this swift foot back? Or who his spoil of beauty can forbid? O oh, none, unless this miracle hath might, that in black ink my love may still shine bright. Okay, did all of you see the four quartets? C, power, plea, flower. First, out, delay, stout, decay. Second, alack, hid, back, forbid. Right? Three court trains, all of them rhyming, and then with a rhyming couplet. And it's important to see that rhyming couplet is a conclusion. It can draw a generalization because being underlies them all. That's one of the most important things to see. Is everybody clear on that? No, who? Who said, Doctor? You go. Raise the question. This had better be good. How is being? Sorry? How is being? Sorry. How is being? Being. Because being under, they're all being. They're all connected. Oh, wait, uh, wait, hold on. Today, um, we live in a nominal world, which. And for anomalous, the world, there's no being, there's just discrete things. There's a, outside of the mind. Sorry, this is going to be, this is philosophy. You did this. Um, outside of the mind, if, sorry, this is, I got to do this. Outside of the mind, only individual things exist, right? Pen, paper, Alexi. Even though for the last month she... <laughs> Right? Outside of the mind, only individual things exist. But in the mind, whatever things we know, we know according to their universality, their immateriality, and their motionless. So this is moving. Oh, here. So Alexei's moving. She's walking in. Okay? But person or human is an abstraction. It's an essence. It's her essence. Is that moving in my mind? No, it's not. Is it material? She walked in with a body. I hope we always see her in her body you know, until we let go of her, right? So she, she's in motion, she's, um, she's material, and she's and, and a particular. But in my mind, what my mind knows is an essence. A woman, no body, it's a woman, and um, immaterial, motionless. Because the mind can grasp the being, the essence of things. So Shakespeare can only draw a generalization. So here, in for anomalous, somebody who doesn't believe, somebody who only believes that particulars exist, there are no universals. By the way, this is the biggest quarrel of the Middle Ages. Because the, the, the reason it was so big, because by denying universals, you denied Godhead and the Trinity. That was the big quarrel between nominalists and realists. Thomas was a realist. Plato, Aristotle, a realist. Occam was anomalous. Occam's the sort of father of the modern world. There's nothing but particulars. Shakespeare's showing us there's our universes. We can make a generalization because we can grasp 
what's universal, the essence, a general, we can make a generalization. For a, a nominalist, he could, he could never write a poem like this with a conclusion like this. There's no conclusion to make because all there is are particulars. How does that? Okay. You too. <laughs> I guess I was, you know, at the beginning when he's speaking of uh, stone and brass and boundless sea as transient, correct? As what? As transient? Yeah. And then in the conclusion, the conclusion is that uh, the rhyme and couplet gives credence to what? The everlasting The poem eternalizes it, Mike, because the tone, the poem takes a thing that's there, his beloved, like or the whatever it is. And the, by the way, this is Boethius because this is straight from Boethius. Remember the circle that everything on the peripheral, the um, the circumference is in motion, but the center is still. This is straight from Boethius, um, and he said. He said that for some, the present moment is always in motion and racking, disturbing, because everybody's flying off the, you know, in their own world. In the center, um, the present moment is um, expanded. So in the present moment, in the center, you get a sense of the present of eternity. So he was, con he was contrasting perpetuity, things ongoing at the circumference, constantly in motion, with eternity, something that's always there. Shakespeare's playing on that notion when he says that poetry can take what's on the surface, you know that, and make it eternal. It's still present to us. We can read about the Iliad today. It's still alive. For some of us, it is for me. It's still alive. Every poem, every poem we've read is living to me. To me, and it's one of the extraordinary gifts. Of, and Shakespeare, interesting, calls it a miracle. So. All he's doing is putting it in a form that holds its beauty, its goodness, and truth in front of us. So it's still there. So even though those things are passing, even though rocks pass or the sea passes, um, and even though his beloved will pass, because in, in one of the next poems we will get, Yes, yes. Yes, yeah, good. It's a shame then also that love is not love unless it's expressed. And then if you write it down, that's an expression. Can you flesh that out, Karen? Related to the poem specifically, because I'm not sure that it's clear to everybody. To the poem specifically? Yeah, can you? And in your terms, I'm going to say it's a love of it, or he wouldn't put it down. I mean, that's a wonderful way that you put it. It wouldn't be there if he didn't love these things and love them enough to write them. So there's some way in which he shares in eternity, 
and um, not only through the poem but the love that's expressed through it and it's interesting to me the way you put it because if it's a Christian love it's got it's got to be incarnated it's got to be made yep you know some people who go because I um, you know some people who say I can't express what I feel for you I think there's a real truth in that I mean if you if partly what's in you is something divine um, it's hard to express it but the whole push towards of Christianity is towards incarnation it's in, it's to give it an expression to struggle to find that's one of the miracles of poetry I mean it's what we've been you know we've got Dostoevsky now who's doing the same thing who's giving us this extraordinary work let's turn to Dostoevsky or right, unless you had more did you have more Bob is saying otherwise. <laughs> Keep it up, Bob. Okay. Can we get that in quote? That's, that's going to that's be blackmailable. Okay, here we go. Before we start with Duskesty, um God bless. You cunts. Can you put this on the table too, Doc? I'm too crowded here. Thanks. Here. Take this too. Sorry. Sorry. Can you move that chair closer? That's good. Thanks. Thanks. Oh, God. Sorry. Two quick notes to pick up last week, um, and then I want to jump into Dostoevsky. Tonight's, I'm going to ask for everybody's help. We have got to do something together. That means you, Bob. We've got to do something together. <laughs> We've got to do something together tonight um, for this to work, so I'm going to be calling on everybody. Last week, I made a statement, which I'm not sure was clear, but I want to try to do everything I can to make it clear. Um, Cheryl, this partly goes to, you know, your concern about Nefarious, and I don't want to... Um, if you haven't seen Nefarious, I would urge you to see it. I think it's a movie everybody should see. I think Father Flynn did a, um, a brave thing in pushing people to see it. I think everybody... I really do. Christ, all Christians, Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter. Everybody should see that movie. Because it's, it's one of the... Um, probably one of the most powerful treatments of evil that I've ever seen. But I also said last week, and I don't remember my words, but I'm going to be really clear about it right now. I think that movie, and I'm going to say this, Father and I are going to have a real interesting discussion when we meet. I think that movie is an artistic failure. And I'm, I'm saying to everybody, go see that movie. I don't want there to be any ambiguity here. Go see the movie. But I'm also saying I think it's artistically a failure. Okay? And here's the reason, and I don't want to go into this at length because this is a whole deeper discussion. I want to get to Dostoevsky, but I want to try to make a principle clear because you know how seriously I take art and its, and its successes and its failures. Um, every work of art dealing with good and evil is ultimately in some sense religious. It implies a metaphysic, whether it's ever stated or not. 
by its very nature, good and evil imply something beyond themselves. So any art that deals with good and evil by its nature has a theological component to it, okay? You know that Shakespeare and Dante were consummate artists. Consummate. There's nothing they didn't look at with respect to good and evil, both, both of them. In every tragedy that we read together, we saw a tragic hero doing something that was not good, that had evil implications, injustices, disorders. Lear is probably the best work we read along those lines. But Shakespeare never, ever leaves an injustice unanswered. Name a play. No comedy, no tragedy. Did Christ ever not deal with evil in a, in a firm, resolute way? Did he ever not defeat it? Give me an example. Not once. With respect to the demons, he cast them out. Okay, there's a conflict between, and I'm gonna, I, please, bear with me, I, I, do not want to, I do not want to take a lot of time here, but this is worth taking a minute on. There's a conflict between good and evil in nefarious. Yes, you'd all agree, pretty dramatic. What's the resolution of that conflict? Is it resolved? Is it? Huh? No. It's not. Go ahead, Chuck. Well, because at the very end, but you want to give it away. Give it away. I'm going to violate. Yeah. No, I'm really serious. Because you know, I, that's a principle. I hate doing that. But this is so serious to me. Go ahead. So, well, we didn't get everything. Okay, justice has been done. It was agonizing. It was peace did, but there was a just result. And then he meets the demon occupying another person. Like the demon's just carrying right on. It's not a victory over Yeah. I want, to, I, I want to take a minute. Sorry, but I. This, well, hold on. Yeah, well, no, no, no. We're, no, I'm, no, I'm talking about this as a work of art on its own. It has to stand on its own. Hold on. Um, we know that demons are immortal, just like human beings. All of us have immortal souls. We know that Christ cast out the demons. He was not going to leave it that way. We know that we know from from Dante in Dante in the end of the um, or Inferno, one of the last characters we saw told us that, that his body was on the earth and it was inhabited by a demon. I think it was I can't remember his name, but it was one of the last figures in the Inferno. He said, "My body's still up on earth, but it's inhabited by a demon." Dante's not afraid to look at that stuff. He knows that goes on. He knows possession's gone. Did he leave it there? No, he did not. We know that demons, when a body dies, will likely, unless something happens, go into another body. Is there any mystery about that? Not according to our belief. Um, but the movie presents us with a conflict between good and evil, and that conflict is not resolved. It is not. And what makes it worse, in my mind, is not only that it is not resolved, that evil is not answered, but at the end, when the guy, I can't remember his name, does the interview, and the guy interviewing him and says, are you a believer? What was his answer? He's in the air. We don't know. How can a man be convinced that there are demons, that is a spiritual reality beyond us, and not believe in something greater than that? To answer it. Because if we don't, we're in one of those ancient um, anti Christian, I can't remember the Zoroast Zoroastrianism, where good and evil are co-eternal. Christianity says good and evil are not co-eternal, 
or you're in a Zoroastric world. If that's true, there's no reason not to choose evil, be eternal, forever. Christianity says, no, God made everything good. He's a good God. Evil is a privation. It's a turning away from God. God can never be defeated. It's not co-evil. It's a bad philosophy. Zoroastrianism is a bad philosophy. It's truncated. It doesn't deal with the question. Is everybody following? Because I'm going so quick. Good and evil cannot be co-internal. If it is, then there's no reason not to be evil. Because we're going to last forever. Our understanding is God is a good God. That's revelation. We get that from scripture. Everything he made is good. Evil is a privation. It's a turning away from him. Evil can never defeat God. The battle was always settled before it began. Evil can never overcome him. So for any artwork to present a conflict between good and evil and not resolve it, I'm saying, is a poor piece of art and it's a poor piece of theology. Because in a work dealing with good and evil, the ultimate end of it is theological in some way, even if it's never made explicit. That's my concern, and I just want everybody to entertain that. I'm not saying don't see it, I'm saying, I'm saying, go see that movie, it's important. But I'm saying, I've got questions about that movie, and it's a serious question whether, in my mind, whether it's Catholic or Protestant. Secondary, I don't want to bring it up tonight. But those are things for all of you guys to think about. Because this is our world, and we have been asked to evangelize it, to make a defense of our faith. Can we do that? If we can't do it with respect to ordinary things like a movie coming out, how in the world are we going to do it with something metaphysical like being or you know, something that's much harder? First thing. Second thing. When we did Shakespeare's They That Have the Power to Hurt, can you remember? I asked that question, They That Have the Power to Hurt and Will Do None. What would have been the difference in meaning if Shakespeare had said, They That Have the Power to Hurt, but will do none. And I was laughing because I thought, who wants to take conjunctions seriously? Conjunctions, are you kidding? That stuff's a, but I, I, to me it's the most telling conjunction in all of literature. And I'm saying that as somebody who spent my life in literature. They that have the power to hurt and will do none. They that have the power to hurt but will do none. Shakespeare's making it clear that whoever these they are, and it's a small number, they're the ones who harvest things, who husband things, who inherit their virtues and um, they don't have to overcome anything. There's no but. For a Protestant, that could not be, right? Because for a Protestant, everybody's fallen, everybody's depraved. If you do good, they that have the power, but will do none. It implies you have something to overcome, all right? So I tr tried to take a small thing like a conjunction and show you there's a lot of meaning then. I want to just flesh this out, and I'm going to do it quickly and go on because I really want to get to Dostoevsky. Um, Shakespeare's got on his mind three individuals. The Protestant would have on his mind only two individuals. Because to the Protestant, every, everybody's depraved. And, and people are either going to go to hell or they're going to go to heaven. Black, white, that's it. Okay? Shakespeare knows that there are some people who just give in to evil. They take their power, they can be a pianist, an artist, a teacher, a doctor, it does not matter. Whatever his gifts are, he uses them for himself. So Shakespeare knows that some people use their gifts for evil. He also knows that some people 
struggle with their weaknesses to overcome them. They that have the power to hurt, but will do none. Right? They've got these weaknesses and they struggle to overcome them. He also knows that there are some people who form a virtue. A virtue, a virtue, according to Aristotle and Thomas, a virtue means a power, a habit. A habit, a habitus, that Latin, a power. When you and Father Flynn is probably one of the best priests I've ever he, He's one of the best priests I've ever known on this. He, he constantly is pushing people to practice virtues. I know that from our time at, at St. Francis. I've never seen a priest do it. I mean, he's, he's saying, don't be a Protestant. Work, work at becoming better. He, he said it. Go through the day and say no to yourself five times. He's saying, learn, learn to practice self-restraint. Learn to say no to yourself. Learn to discipline yourself. Why? Because it's in our nature to become virtuous if we will do it. There's some people who work at being virtuous and who become virtuous. They that have the power to hurt and will. It's not a struggle for them. That's their habit. Whatever they will do, they will do in virtue. Is that number large? I don't believe so. Does it exist? I absolutely believe it. We are, and according to Catholic faith, because we give nature the place that we do, we make a place for virtues, to become virtuous, to work at something, to learn to sacrifice ourselves, to give ourselves up, stop being so egotistic, to look for the good of another person instead of our own. Those are things we can do in the natural order. Does that mean that'll take us to Christ? No, it does not, but it does mean we can make our nature better. And then we have supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity, which are beyond those are the gifts we get from God to do much harder things. Okay? Was everybody following? Shakespeare could not have written that poem unless he had on his mind people who give in to evil, people who confront evil but don't give in to it, they that have the power to hurt but will do none, and those people who do things out of goodness because it's inherent in them, it's a virtue in them to be good. They that have the power to hurt and will do none. Now that's a small conjunction, but I hope you see Shakespeare could do that because he looked back to a Catholic age. He's right on the verge of the Reformation where that whole way of looking is going to be broken apart. One of the reasons I'm going to read Shakespeare for the next few weeks with Dostoevsky because I'm going to raise the question when we're done with Dostoevsky, where does Dostoevsky stand with respect to reason? whether reason can grasp being. I'm going to repeat that. Um, I've already said this, and I've asked you to keep it in mind. Remember Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Portia, from outside Venice, came into Venice to use her powers of reason to mediate a case. If it went either way, if it went in favor of Shylock, Antonio would die. He'd be executed. If it went in favor of Antonio, the law would go because who would, who would be willing to invest if the law wasn't upheld? She had to use her powers of reason to reconcile an Old Testament, New Testament view, Shylock Christian, and she did it. She used her reason to reconcile. Brothers Karamazov is going to end on a major trial. It's going to be the event towards which everything is headed. What does Shakespeare do? I mean, sorry, what does um, Dostoevsky do with it? It's just looking ahead.
Okay, let me stop. Any questions before we jump in? Because now we're jumping into brothers in earnest. I just have a comment about Buck and Ann. <laughs> so my daughter, she's in her thirties now, but when she, because I think there's a big difference. But when she was a kid and she played soccer or run cross country, she couldn't stand it when she would hear after the event. Oh, you made a great save, or you did, did this the, great but, but yes. And she used to cry, and she said, "Can you just not say but?" But yeah. Why can't it just be? Yeah, yeah. Such a good comment, Mary. It's true. It's it's so much easier for most of us. It's hard to carry through with compliments and find a way of dealing with negatives in a way that's not black white. But I think the tendency of the modern world is to make them black-white, not, not contiguous. That's why you, you know, Father Flynn's good at this. The Kathy will say, um, what is, not, it's, it's both, it's both, both and, isn't that, but not but and? It's not but and, or and, no, it's not but and. Well, it's, it's, both, it's both but and, it's two of them. The, both and, yeah, this and this. So to go back to the way I said, there's a contiguity, a continuousness, um, but in the modern wine, in the Protestant wine, it's black-white. It's good-bad. And the part of the effort of this whole class that we've been doing is for me to sort of soften that quiet at some. You know that I believe in hell. You know that I believe in evil. You know that I believe demons are real. So I'm not, I don't want to fool around with those. But. <laughs> but I think her example is so clear because they could say you did really, really well and you can do. Improve here. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Good. Thanks. Okay. You all ready? Uh, she got the feeling that she was never good enough. Yeah. 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 There's, yes, go ahead, George. Uh, unfortunately, that's what they teach the soccer coaches, yeah. the Sanders theory, good, bad, good. Uh, after doing it for many, many years and at the highest levels, I always learned that on game day, and I always emphasize this to my parents and everybody else, remain positive on game day. Do not get negative. You've got to make it fun. But that's what they always do. All the time. They always do the same thing. They always talk to coaches and say something good and bad and good. Uh, except for me, it was always a game and I keep doing it. I might miss some classes that I'm about to do fall and fall. Except on the game day for me, I tell all my parents this. I get mad at them if they have any negativity on game day. That's the reason I do that. Is I want it all positive so they can go home like your daughter, and go home and be happy with what they did, win, lose, and draw. Yeah. Well, that what, makes that's, sense. That's what they teach the coaches. My husband was a D-level coach. Yeah, I was too. Yeah, so he... <laughs> I am too, I still am. Uh, but that's what they teach everybody. That you, that's that's home, true of all sports. Let me... got to make it better. Yeah, let me quickly, because I want to... But if I can add a note here, and then I want to um, get to Dostoevsky. There's this adage about fathers 
being um, easily pleased and hard to satisfy? I think there's some truth to that because, you know, Christ says be perfect. And, but the way in which we do that, the, the spirit that we bring to it, how we frame it or what, you know, is another thing. Because we're all asked to be perfect and coaches typically want players to do better. So you can say, you were good, but I thought Ann's example was good. What you did was really great. And there's some things we can work on. To, you know, I mean, there's other ways of doing it. I coached, because I grew up loving sports. I mean, sports has been a major part of my life, major. And at the end of my life, when I had to fall away from most of them, because I was getting older, I took up bowling and got good at it and pretty serious, and I would do some coaching. And I would say to the whoever I was working with, um, Mike, who runs that, um, and I used to... And I used to always tell him, shut up and bowl, because he gets, you know, just had to analyze everything to death, and I would say, bowl, you know, I'd give him some things in the table. But I would always, I'd say, one of the most important things you could say, like when you're, when you're trying to pick up a 10-pin, and a major game is on it, so it's not just, you're competing, and there's, a, let's say, a 10-pin leaving. Um, it's not good, and I wouldn't say not good, because I'd take not out of it. It's not good to say, um, don't do this. Because what you do is leave in that person a fear of doing that. What you want to say is, pick it up. Be, po be positive. Pick it up. And my response was, Mary never said, only when. Or she'd say, yes. And my attitude is, when you're facing something like that, say yes. Do it. Don't say, don't do this, don't miss. Don't. Because what you're doing then is acting off of a fear. Fear, even if you pick it up, what's behind you is a fear. And if, you, if things get really competitive, how much will that fear play into everything you're doing? So as a coach, that was not a small thing for me. It was, I mean, I, I'd get all, I'm not, I have no qualms about getting down on somebody. I think you all know that. Beat somebody up um, and say to Mike, bull, go out and throw the ball, bull. But if I were coaching seriously and, you know, I would want to take that, don't do this, don't do this. Don't. When you're facing a moment, you want to say, even if you miss, because you may miss, but you want to go into it saying, do this, because the more you do that, the more positive you get. You're not working against fears. You're, start, you're being less afraid and beginning to believe that you can do it. And that's important in every sport. And just as it is in everything we do in life. So anyway, let's stop. I've, we've got to get here. Take. I was thinking, because we all think in terms of our own builder, uh, I was unfortunate enough to be a good writing teacher for elementary school children, so that's what I did. And that's what, when we would, when I would coach them, like, you did an excellent job on this. Next time, we're going to focus on, so you're adding on instead of, yeah. you didn't do this. <laughs> I went to a I don't kind of got to went to a school and was invited into the school to teach, and I was given a stack of papers that one of the teachers had corrected, and I went through it. It was just stunning to me. There was nothing but negative comments running through every paper, and I, the guy who was teaching learned a lot from reading my responses because when I went through the because I'm a real stickler. I mean, I I want I want kids to get better at writing. I flunked writing and. Using words is really important. So I would go through papers thoroughly, 
But I'd always do something positive and say, oh, this is well read or whatever, you know, or, and at the end I'd say something. This guy went through my comments and couldn't believe it because it was like a, a whole different way of teaching from what he'd been taught to do. You have to be able to be critical. You have to say, this is not good. You know, this is, or you've done this grammatically, it's not right. Or, but you've also got to encourage people and give them a reason for working and, you know, come on, let's do, let's do Dostoevsky. Um, one review comment before we look at the text. Last week I went back to our work on um, the city and recalled for everybody, remember that there were two notions that we inherited from the ancient world on the city. One was biblical, remember, that Enoch was the founder of the first city. That when God um, cast Cain out, Cain had a son, Enoch, and Enoch was the founder of the first city. That's biblical. And I suggested, and this is St. Augustine's reading of it, and I think it's so profound. He said, the city comes into being in man's effort to live without God, because before that we lived in paradise with him, in harmony. So the city is our effort to live a self-sufficient life as if we didn't need God, and it's double-edged. So this is, and it's been a profound unit for, I've been going back to this every work, beginning with the Iliad, Shakespeare. We have not dealt with a major work where I have not gone back to the city. The city is the most extraordinary thing on the, on the earth. I gave you the example, if you look at those skyscapes of cities across the world, they're stunning. And you can't look at that and say, without saying, the human beings could do this. It's, we, are, we can create a world for ourselves. So part of us looks back to the beauty of Eden. We want to hold on to what we lost, to recover that, that love, that peace and unity. So the whole direction of the, of the city is to recover that, to embody it, to make it real. But since we've turned from God, it's also the most violent of places. The city is different from the country because evil is more concentrated. So the city is paradoxical, it's double-edged. It shows the very greatest um, things about man and it shows also the depths of his evil, okay? That's biblical. Aristotle, mostly, not Plato so much here, but Aristotle. This, and I want everybody to hold on to this because it's absolutely crucial. Remember, according to Aristotle, um, the mean is the virtue everywhere in life. Doesn't matter where in our own activities, we should be working to become virtue, all of us. Um, the two extremes of the city are the tribe at one end. So picture, it's on, it's on my notes if you've got it. The tribe is at one extreme, the empire is at the other. The principle of identity for the tribe is the bloodline. The individual does not emerge, it's the race. So in America where you've got people who, who try to make everything depend on the race, they're going back to a tribal world that America's trying to come out of. To make race the identif identifying thing because it's real, is to actually tear down things because once people get into the races they're going to do nothing but fight each other. So on one extreme is the tribe, the racial bloodline. Aeneas faced that when he returned to Iliad, I mean to Italy if you remember the Aeneid. Um, once race becomes everything, we lose a sense of man as man. That is the ties we have with each other, irregardless of our race. 
Um, I was raised Greek Orthodox. In a Greek world, you're in a Greek world. If you're Turkish, you're in a Turkish world. You know, Hispanic. Gen so the whole struggle of America is to make a place for those races and still help people come together to find a common identity. That we are one. We are brothers and sisters to each other. At the opposite extreme is the empire. And the empire um, commits itself to technological development, to um, ex an expansion of its powers. So you've got the pyramids, the Great Wall of China, you know, the hanging things, the, all the seven wonders of the world. Chuck, go ahead, sorry. What? Yeah, I'm, right? We've got all those technological accomplishments. But take a look at either of those extremes. In any account, historical account of either of those extremes, do you ever, do you ever recall the mention of any individual? Was any individual ever mentioned in the building of the Wall of China or the pyramids? The individual is eclipsed, eliminated, for the sake of some greater goal. And the same is true in the tribe. The individual doesn't emerge because the bloodline's more important. Aristotle argued that it's only in the polis, only in the polis, that the individual emerges. It's only when people reach a point where there's a division of labor, where some people take on one task, other people take on, so everybody's not doing everything. Because once everybody does everything, there's no time for reading. Dostoevsky. Or philosophy. Yes? Is everybody following? It's only with the division of labor that we find leisure, and it's only in leisure that we can study. Now, some people look at leisure as a time for nothing but fun, and that's what people are going to do with their freedom. Aristotle and Plato both loved it because it, democracy, the what they call the mixed polity, the, the polity that mixed all, you know, monarchy, democracy, oligarchy, the um, the mixed polity was the one that mixed them all, and it was only in that regime that people had the freedom, and those who chose to would use it to get wiser, to grow in wisdom. Now here's what's crucial. So is everybody following? It's only in the polis that the individual emerges. Now listen to this carefully. The polis is not something you can define mathematically or scientifically with measurements. The polis is an image of a potential that can be realized. Aristotle said the notion was a telos, an end. All of us have the potential, let me put this differently. Mike has been given, God made him to be Mike, to fully realize whatever potential he had. Not to be Mary, or Anna, or Mir, right? To be Mike. Holly was made to be her. She will only be most fully her when she realizes her full potential. Short of that should be less than, yeah? Is everybody following? Every one of us has been given somebody to be by our parents and God. And so often we let things get in the way of helping us to become that person God wanted us to be. Is everybody clear? He, he made us in his image. He's asking us to be perfect. He's given everything he can to help us become who he's given us to be. But so often we let things get in the way of, of that happening. Okay? So the polis is that. It's not something you could put scientific dimensions on or measurement. It's, it's an image, it's a name 
referring to that which will come into be when it helps each individual become himself. And the interesting thing about the polis is no individual can come himself except with the help of other people. That's partly what the polis is. It's where people gather together to help each person become who that person's begun given to be. Is that clear? Okay, let me go a step farther and then come back to it. What Peter did, Peter the Great, when he saw what was going on in Europe, was to try to recreate Russia artificially. Every European nation had grown up organically over history, from Homer on, through the great philosophers. So a literary tradition, a philosophic tradition, over centuries helped produce Greece, Rome, the great republics of the world, right? The medieval world when Christ came, Jerusalem, the way, of, um, the way of Athens, the way of Rome, the Davidic way, the way of David with Christ. Those are all images of the city, of a, of a people gathering together to be. But they all grew up organically, yeah? Over time, people learned slowly. Peter made an effort to try to artificially create, through artifice, a new world. So Dostoevsky, this is the reason I brought this up last week, Dostoevsky is writing right at that moment when old mother Russia, looking back to an old way, a Christian way of living, is suddenly on the threshold um, under the influence of all these European enlightenment ideas that are causing all these dislocations. And what's going to happen immediately after Dostoevsky writes? Socialism, communism, and Solzhenitsyn who's now writing from within a socialistic regime. So I've made this statement before. All great artists, almost all great artists, tend to write at a time when a civilization is about to end. Shakespeare, Faulkner in America. We're looking back to a Christian world. The South has lost the Civil War. We're on the way to a new world. America, um, Melville, Hawthorne. You know where we are. We've read it. Um, America's looking back to a new creation and suddenly um, some of its most important precepts are failing and we're looking at a new world. What's going to come next? That's where Hawthorne and Melville leaves us off. Faulkner will be the next great and it's after the Civil War. Is everybody following? So Dostoevsky is poised. I mean think about this. It's like an artist here going back to your point. It's like an artist lives in a moment with everything that's dear to him because of his genius, his sensitivity, his great capacity to feel. He has this great love for his country, the people around him, and is, is not quite aware yet, but aware something's happening. Dostoevsky was accused of being involved in all those revolutionary movements because all these revolutionary movements, the, all the, Europe was torn apart in 1848. Almost every nation was torn by revolution, attempting to, run, um, over, to remove monarchs in favor of Republican governments, democracies. The United States has already won its war, 1776. So we're in an era in which the world is changing. We, we've left the Holy Roman Empire. We are, we are on the verge of the modern totalitarian state. And Dostoevsky is writing at that moment in Russia. So don't forget that. Aristotle, 
to pull us. It's a thing of nature. It works. The people are working with nature. Peter wanted to artificially create a new world. For the last three, four months, you've been hearing me talk about this book that was just published, How We Became Post-Human. We're in an age in which AI people believe we can artificially create something superior to the human being. So in reading Dostoevsky, we're, we're going back to a moment of crisis where the West is poised on a threshold about to face huge disorders. And I'm going to say, um, I've been thinking a lot about Dostoevsky's book, The Demons. I've told you about it. He writes this book called The Demons. What Dostoevsky's showing in The Demons is, is that these people become so taken over with these revolutionary ideas that what they do multiply these evils like the demons in the demoniac that Christ put into the swine. That's Dostoevsky's epigraph for that novel. Christ putting those demons and sending them over the bank. Because Dostoevsky is looking at a world in which demonic forces have been released. So for anybody who wants to go on camping trips and go to beaches, have fun. <laughs> Anyways, everybody following? We are, ed, we are on the edge of a kind of demonic world. It's really, I'm, I'm sorry, to do, I didn't intend to do this. Dostoevsky's brothers, the demons. We just saw a movie called Nefarious. <laughs> Any questions or comments? That's the city. Just hold on to those two differences. The founding fathers of America, the founding fathers of America wrote the Constitution with an extraordinary grasp of history. Their grasp of history went back to Athens, to Rome, to Jerusalem, to the Magna Carta, to the religious wars that had taken place. They were writing a constitution based on an organic sense of history developing so that they, they wanted to try to do something to protect that. It was real, the human being, the person. Each person has unalienable rights. They cannot be taken away. They're um, antecedent to any political action. They exist before politics. This is the Iliad. Every human being has an inherent dignity. The American Constitution set in motion of the people, by the people, for the people. To create a form of government that would protect human beings. Socialism is an attempt to move towards the state and give the state absolute powers to bring heaven down here to create a heaven here. Where does the individual go? I've, I've raised that question on my grasp, but I'll leave it for you to answer. Let me stop. Any questions about that brief overview? Because I really want to get into the book. Any comments on the importance of the city and the nation and the modern world and what we're all facing and the importance of good reading? There's no more wine. We have to bring our own next time. I think I'm going to make it a rule. So long as we're doing Dostoevsky, I'm bringing some. What'd she say? Any questions? God, go. 
glad to have your questions again. I missed them. Of an ideal polis. Do I? Yes, from oh, wow. real life You know, it's it's a it's actually a contradiction in terms to say ideal polis because it's, but it's actually accurate. It's just it's a thing you have to be careful of. Yeah, I mean, you're following my definition of it, that it's, yeah. Um, because there can't be an I, but in a sense, it's an attempt to realize the potential. So um, I'm going to give you an example from literature. Um, Faulkner's Jefferson, when we get to Jefferson, is as close to that because it's agrarian. It looks back to an old, so it's southern. Faulkner would argue, and I would certainly be behind him a lot, but most northern cities are industrial cities. They're industrialized. You know, they, they tend to um, alienate the human person, whereas the South was far more communal. Far, even with the black-white relations, there was still a communal sense between them. And even with slavery, that was... So Jefferson is, to me, a good city. Um, I, if, I were, if I were to go back, um, I'd have to search, but somewhere in Ireland, you know. So to answer your question, and I'm going to get off of it quick. Anywhere where you find a traditional city that still values the individual, but there's a strong sense of a community where people help. So it would not be New York. It would not be Hollywood. You know, it would not be those metropolitan centers. There would, there would be a strong place of the past. Um, some cities in in Rome, I, but but let me stop there, just because it's a hard. But is that one concrete example that comes to mind is Jefferson would come close to it in Faulkner's world. Let's let's get to Dostoevsky. I'm going to quickly. I I didn't. Sorry. I um, <coughs> I meant to go over the opening to be clear on the um, history of each of the characters, Dmitri. Ivan and Alyosha. I wanted to take some time with that, but I'm not, I, I've taken already too much time. So look at the notes, will you please, because I think the notes help hold on to that. Um, and then I wanted to take some passages from Alyosha and Ivan and Dmitri and the elders just to make concrete each one of them. I'll do that next time because I'm I'm finally getting past my, you know, my background invitation or information tends to take up more time than I planned for, but I'll do that next time. I'm going to do this. Um, I'm going to quickly go past the opening where we get the histories of the major characters. When everybody arrives at the monastery for this meeting, and it's important, and we know that its importance rests in this fact. That meeting has been called to try to reconcile differences between Dmitri and Fyodor. And the, the narrator makes it clear that we're headed towards a catastrophe. I'm not going to give it away right now. But there's going to be a, um, a violent conflict involving Dmitri and his father. Um, so the whole action is going there. That's the skeleton of the Brothers Karamazov. And it's focused here. But in this meeting, the focus isn't on Dimitri. Dimitri comes late. We get this discussion among the men, on the one hand, and we get um, Zosima's um, touching, um, healing blessings of the women on the other. Okay? So I want to work around that this morning. 
So I'm gonna I'm just gonna quickly go through some things and then I'm gonna come back to those the two scenes I just mentioned. So here's the plot, the enveloping action. It's the enveloping action, it's what's taking place, and I want to get to the center of it, the meeting between the men and the and the meeting between Zosimov and the women, okay? So hold on to that. So the men arrive, and in that arrival, you can go to page 36, and by the way, I'm going to give page numbers that I only learned afterwards. In the new edition that you guys have, I think there's a difference between one page and mine. So if I give you a page number, I, I can't do this with you, because it's, but if you don't find it on that page, look one page before or one page after and you'll find the quotes, okay? In the arrival, the focus of the, the scene are these exchanges between uh, Miyasov and Fyodor. And I'm gonna just give a hint of this now. So, Miyasov, who is liberal atheist, he was involved in the um, in France during the revolution, in the event that took place in 1848. So he's, he's intellectually he's very much a part of the all these enlightened movements going on in Europe. Okay, he comes, he's there, and by the way, he's he's related to. Fyodor's first wife. She married into the Musov family, okay? He's her, he's her cousin. Um, he's there. He's also got property next to the management. He's been carrying on litigation. So he has a couple of reasons for being there. And he's here with Fyodor, and he makes it clear that he wants nothing to do with Fyodor because Fyodor is always embarrassing. I've got to go through this quickly because I've got a huge question for you guys. So he says on page 36, behave. Um, and you know we're all given to our word to behave properly, and you, Piedor, will you go in? Why not? Did I not come here precisely to observe all their customs? Only one thing that bothers me, that is being in your company. He doesn't like him. He keeps saying, I'm going to leave if you don't behave. On page 37, um, Miyasov says, um, I have no intention of being put on the same level with you here. You see what sort of man he is. He turned to the monk. I'm afraid to appear among these. So he doesn't even want to be seen with people like Fyodor. Okay? He says that again and again. The monk makes a, a smirky sort of smile in return. Oh, the devil take the lot of them. It's just a front cultivated for centuries. Cultivated for centuries and underneath nothing but charlatanism and nonsense flashed through his head. That's... Uh, um, Miusev. Um, so, Fyodor makes it plain that he's, he says, I'm going to behave myself. Miusev doesn't trust him. He says, behave or he'll leave. In chapter 2, when they come to Zosimov's um, room, um, we've got lengthy um, passages spoken by Fyodor. I can't, I can't go through them all. Page 40 in the middle. To all appearances a malicious and pretty, prettily arrogant little soul flashed through Miusev's head. In general he felt very displeased with himself. 
Fyodor is going to go on and on and on. He says, that's quite true, I'm not a king, and just imagine, Pyotr Alexandrovich, I even knew it myself by God. You see, I'm always saying something out of place. Your reverence, he's talking to Zosimov, he exclaimed with a sort of instant pathos, you see before you a buffoon, verily a buffoon, thus I introduce myself. It's an old habit, alas, and if sometimes tell lies inappropriately, I do, not e I do it even on purpose, on purpose to be pleasant and make people laugh. Go on over the next page, down a few lines. I'm forever damaging myself with my own courtesy. Once, this was many years ago now, I said to an influential person, he talks about tickling the wife and, and he gets tickled, beaten up. Um, Mia says, says, you're doing it now um, because um, Theodora said, I'm always hurting myself. The elder silently looked from one to the other. Really, imagine, I knew it all along, Piotr. And you know, I even had a feeling that I was doing it just as I started speaking. Put down. I'm a natural-born buffoon. I am, Reverend Father, just like a holy fool. I won't deny that there's maybe an unclean spirit living in me too. Not a very high-caliber one. He tells this story about Diderot, who was the um, atheist philosopher and makes up this story as if he got attracted to a woman and converted, which is a lie. And he then confesses it, and, and page 42, 43, once again he has these long paragraph speeches. He goes on, um, the hieromonk, does everybody know what a hieromonk is? A hieromonk is an actual priest. He's, he's distinguished from the monks in being a priest. He can give the sacraments. So they're there present, watching all of this. Um, um, at the page 43, forgive me, Misu began addressing the elder, it may seem to you that I too am a participant in this unworthy farce. My mistake was in trusting that even such a man as Fyodor Pavlovich would be willing to recognize his duties when visiting such a venerable person. I did not think that I would have to apologize just for the fact of coming with him. Peter Alexander broke off was about to leave the room. Um, the, Zosima says, do not upset yourself, I beg you. Do not worry, I beg you. I ask you particularly to be my guest. And with a bow, he turned, returned and sat down on the settee. Um, go on down. Um, he says, be at ease, feel completely at home, and above all, do not be so ashamed of yourself, for that's the cause of everything. Fyodor, completely at home, you mean in my natural state, then he admits that it's his sense of being ashamed that makes him do what he does. On page 44, um, Zosima says, you've known for a long time what you should do. You have sense enough. Do not give yourself up to drunkenness and to verbal incontinence, that is just run off at the mouth. Do not give yourself up to sensuality and especially to the adoration of money and close your, your taverns. You cannot close all of them in at least two or three. And above all, everything else, do not lie. He undoes all of that for a moment and he can't stop acting. Um, and it's at this point that Zosimov will excuse himself to go to the women. I want to just take a minute with them. But before I do, it's crucial to see here that the most important thing that Zosimov says to Fedor is do not lie. He believes, and he will make clear through the course of the book, he believes that if you don't know the truth, if you, if you do not live the truth, you cannot love. You cannot love unless you know the truth. Because 
how will you know what to love? So the truth is absolutely fundamental to Zosimo's character. And he's telling Fyodor, stop lying. But too much of what you do consists in lies. You don't need to do this, okay? Now go to the women just for a minute. Um, I don't want to take a lot of time. I'm just going to touch on one or two of them here. Um, the first woman is a shrieker. And we get a story describing this woman who fell into emotional disorders, but when the Eucharist was brought to her, she quieted. Immediately, she quieted. So whatever emotional disorders she had were ultimately connected with her faith. Okay? Um, the second, Nastasha, on page 48, <coughs> lost her son and left her husband, who began giving into alcoholism when he started drinking. Um, Zosimov quietly scolds her. He tells her that she's committed a sin of um, um, sorcery, that she's actually attempting to raise her son because she won't let go of him in her emotional grief. So like the first one, she's very emotional. And she lets her emotions get the better of her enough so that she, she wants to treat her son as if he's alive and she's raising him through grief. And Zosim says, don't. Your son is alive, go back, pray, do penance, return to your husband, because it's a sin to leave him. You've got to let this go. The third is a widow, um, oh sorry, sorry, this is the one that lost her son and um, that she treats to um, like sorcery, sorry. And Zosima tells her to return to her um, husband. The fourth one we learned secretly, what happens to her, do you guys recall? Yeah, she privately, I mean, we don't get it, but it's clear that what she's done is committed murder. So she's killed her husband, and um, Zosima says to her, no crime, God, this is sort of wonderful, no crime is greater than the extent of God's love. That no matter what sin you commit, so long as you repent and ask forgiveness, God will forgive you. So don't let your guilt about that sin keep you from God. Repent, keep repenting, do your repentance, but pray and go back to God. Um, the fifth one comes with a child and she offers money. She wants to give money and her wealth. And the sixth one is, um, is uh, Madame Kolk, um, Koklovav, who is Lisa's mother. Lisa's crippled. She has a fondness for um, Alyosha that will become pretty clear um, quickly. She's got a note for him from Katrina, who is Ivan's um, loved one. And we learn from her that her concern is that she's lost her faith. She believes in God, but she says she doesn't believe in the immortality of the soul. And he says to her, continue to repent, hold on to your position, but pray to God, God knows this, um, and you'll get closer to him. In fact, let me hold on if I can see if I can um, This is in the fourth chapter a lady of little faith um, on page 57 No 
for it's enough that you are distressed by it, do what you can, and it will be reckoned unto you. You have already done much if you can understand yourself so deeply. That she can be honest about herself, that she grieves about not believing, is in some ways an, an, an indication of her faith. Um, You've already done much if you can understand yourself so deeply and so sincerely. But if you spoke with me so sincerely just now in order to be praised, I have praised you for truthfulness, then of course you will get nowhere. If she's doing it out of vanity, it won't mean anything. If she really believes it and she's suffering from it, God will know that. Then naturally you will forget about the future life and in the end will somehow calm down by yourself. She feels crushed by what he says in a good way, over in 58. Keep watching your own lie, because you're not being honest with yourself. All lies, especially the lie to yourself. Keep watch on your own lie. Examine it every hour, every minute. And every hour, every minute. Avoid contempt, both of others. Because she said, I can love people in general, but when I get about, you know, up close to somebody, I hate them. You can love men always. It's easy to love men in, in abstract. All of us can love in abstraction. Actually loving somebody who's disgusting to us right in front of us. How easy is that? Avoid contempt both of others and of yourself. What seems bad to you in yourself is purified by the very fact that you have noticed it in yourself. And avoid fear. The fear is simply the consequence of every lie. Never be frightened at your own faint-heartedness in attaining love. And meanwhile, do not even be very frightened by your own bad acts. I'm sorry that I cannot say anything more comforting, for active love is a harsh and fearful thing compared with love of dreams. Love of dreams thirsts for immediate action, quickly performed, and with everyone watching, indeed, it will go as far as the giving, even of one's life, provided it does not take long, but is soon over, as on stage, and everyone is looking on and praising. Whereas active love is labor and perseverance. It takes a whole life to learn how to love. Okay. Now, quickly, um, I'm going to back to page um, or chapter five. So be it. And the discussion between the men. Ivan has written an article in which he's arguing that. Um, that separation between church and state powers is impossible, in page 61. Compromise between the state and the church on such questions as courts, for example, is in my opinion, in its perfect and pure essence, impossible. The churchman with whom I argued maintains that the church occupies a precise and definite place within the state. I objected that on the contrary, the church should contain in itself the whole state and not merely occupy a certain so. In his argument, he's saying that one day the state should be completely absorbed into the church so the church regulated everything, even punishments, ecclesiastical courts, so that when courts decided on the guilt of a man, the church would be in charge. Very true, Father Pacey, the silent and learned Hiram monk, said firmly. Sheer ultramontanism, Musuv exclaimed, crossing and recrossing his heart in impatience. Um, so the argument is going to go back and forth between men who support him and men who disagree on page 62. Um, Theodore says, or um, Ivan, sorry, says, the whole point of my article is that in ancient times during the first three centuries, 
Christianity was revealed on earth only by the church and was only the church. But when the pagan Roman state desired to become Christian, it inevitably so happened that having become Christian, it merely included the church in itself. I'm sure he's talking about Constantine. When Constantine uh, made Christianity leg legitimate, he didn't make it the official church, but by making it legitimate, it tended to take on that status. Um, and I would ask everybody, I'm, I'm gonna bring a copy. When we did Dante, I gave you a little handout, a thumbnail sketch of church and state. It would, be go, it would be really good to go back and look at it. I'll bring copies next week. It's just two pages, thumbnail sketch of the struggle between church and state during the Middle Ages because it was crucial to Dante to show the way in which they disengaged from each other. Okay. But Rome as a state retained too much of pagan civilization and wisdom, for example, the very aims and basic principles of the state, whereas Christ's church, having entered the state, no doubt could give up none of its own basic principles of that rock on which it stood and could pursue none but its own aims. So he's saying, let that be. And Pacey's saying, so be it, so be it. He wants it to be. Um, Musev says on page 63, I confess that I have now reached now, have you now reassured me somehow? So far as I understand it, this then would be the realization of some ideal, an infinitely remote one, at the second coming. This is, as you please, a beautiful utopian dream, and the disappearance of wars, diplomats, banks, <coughs> something even resembling socialism. And here I was thinking you meant all, it all seriously, and that the church might now, for instance, be judging criminals and sentencing them to flogging hard labor. Zosima is going to say, on page 64 in the middle, if anything protects society, even in our time, and even reforms, the criminal himself transforms him into a different person. Again, it is Christ's law alone which manifests itself in the acknowledgement of, one, of one's own conscience. He's saying that the law is insufficient, that you can't convert a criminal you can punish him, but you're only going to deal with externals. It's only, in, it's only when you go to his conscience and change that, that he'll come out a changed criminal. So his argument is in favor of that the state be absorbed into the church, ultimately. Okay. Thus, the modern criminal is capable of acknowledging his guilt before the church alone and not before the state. Um, going over, this is what's really interesting, 65. And it withholds above all because the judgment of the church is the only judgment that contains the truth and that for reasons it cannot essentially and morally be combined with any other judgment, even in a temporary compromise. Here it is not possible to strike any bargains. A foreign criminal, they say, rarely repents for even the modern theories themselves confirm in him the idea that his crime is not a crime but only a rebellion against an unjust an unjustly oppressive force. Society cuts him off, he's giving an argument, and go down. So it seems to be, at least in Lutheran lands, and in Rome it's already a thousand years. That is that Rome gave over, that Rome absorbed the church into the state, and that what Luther was doing was moving the Protestant Reformation into the state by accommodating to the ends of the state. I've got another passage here to read, but I, we don't have time. And Father Pacey has continued to go, so be it, so be it. I want to stop here. On page 66, you have been pleased to understand it 
In completely opposite sense, Father Pius, he spoke sternly, it is not the church that turns into the state, but you see, that's Rome and its dream that is the third temptation of the devil. It rises up to the church and becomes the church all over the earth, which is the complete opposite of ultramontanism and of Rome and of your interpretation. It's simply the great destiny of orthodoxy on earth. This star will show forth from the east that the state will be absorbed into the church and the church will become everything. Now let me stop. <coughs> I don't want to get into this discussion right now except to say one thing because I want to turn our attention elsewhere. That's Dostoevsky's opening. He shows us the men arguing about politics, something men were doing in the Iliad and the Odyssey. He shows us the women going to Zosimov for blessings, all of them. So we're, the men are given to their intellects, the, men are, the women to their emotions. And what's at the issue is a matter of faith on the one hand and the intellect, I mean it's underlying both these things, and a serious disagreement between the men on the role of church and state and politics. I don't want to go there. I just want everybody to hold on. I'll, we will pick up here because I want to ask everybody what you make of that. And I'd like you to keep in mind this thought. I, I sent it to you in my note. The Russian literary critic, Mikhail, Mikhail um, Bakhtan, Bakhtan, Bakhtin, sorry, um, is probably one of the most important literary critics of the 20th century. And he maintained, um, it's on your notes by the way in the back, don't, don't look, but um, read the notes on the back because they're really important. He maintained that language is a form of oral discourse. Lots of writers, lots of philosophers begin with the assumption that language has to do with the written word. Bakhtin is differing fun fundamentally with lots of modern linguists. He's saying that the spoken word is the principle of discourse. And he's making the argument that the nature of the spoken word is to exchange in a conversation. It anticipates a person and an answer. So that when you go to church and you're meeting somebody outside whom you know is a friend who might be a relative, a sister, or a friend who's Protestant, your mind is already working along certain lines. He's maintaining that every discourse, this is his principle, and it, I, I just think it's fundamentally sound. Every discourse implies a hidden polemic. We take a stand, all of us, whether we articulate it or not. And when we engage in a discourse with another, we anticipate or expect a response. Okay? All discourse starts with a hidden polemic. We take a stand. When we engage in a discourse, it's anticipating an answer, preparing for it, or answering it, or picking it. So a dialogue goes on. He's saying that the fundamental nature of literature is dialectic. The novelists are not only showing us um, exchanges between characters like the husbands or the men in Zosima's room discussing church and state, that novel itself is an expression of a conversation with people beyond its boundaries. And Dostoevsky knows that. So that when he's presenting characters, he's aware of people. And he's so, he's not, he's not an ideologue, he's not professing, he's not, he's not didactic. He's not a Catholic trying to promote Catholicism. I hope you're following. He's a novelist letting characters in their own voices speak in their own voices. So he's not a, um, an autocrat. He's not forcing his 
characters to speak his beliefs to convince people. Because you know authors do that. Their, their writing is didactic. They're trying to prove it could be Jewish, it could be Catholic. Dostoevsky's not doing that. He's letting characters speak in their own voices, their own idioms, and allowing them to speak knowing that readers will engage in that dialectic. Okay? Now that's one of the most important contributions because it's a way of saying that literature doesn't exist in isolation. It's, it involves an ongoing conversation with us. Okay? Now, next week I want to get back to this discussion about church and state and what your thoughts are about um, Ivan's stance towards Rome and Luther's stance towards Rome. Because if you remember, um, Musov or Ivan was describing this conversation with this guy who said he was having a conversation with this man who was defending socialism and he said socialists and anarchists are all dangerous because socialists by nature are atheists they want to create a city without God that's the nature of socialism but he said the most dangerous form of socialism is the form of socialism supported by Christians and it's just then that they, and it's interesting to me. It's just then that the conversation stops and we turn. Dostoevsky knew exactly what he's doing with that moment to raise that question for us. So I want to pick up with that point next week. Okay? Is everybody following? But here's where I want to spend at least a few minutes. For several chapters, Dostoevsky makes the focus of those chapters the differences between uh, Miusov and Fyodor. Fyodor does everything to disgust himself. Miyasov uh, does everything to keep apologizing, saying, forgive, you know, um, what he's doing and going on. Now, remember what I said about Mendipian satire. You all remember that. The dog, or characters we've looked at. Um, Fyodor Dostoevsky is, a, in some ways, a despicable character, you know. He's making a buffoon of himself. He's making everybody angry at himself. He's ca he causes his son to be so outraged that he um, wishes he were dead. And the next chapter with the young seminarian, the young seminarian prophecies a parasite that's, that some violence is going to take place. That in all likelihood, Alexei, or I mean, uh, Dmitri will kill his father. So we've got intimations of something bad. It's at that moment when the violence becomes so great between Dmitri and um, Zosimov that Zosimov bows down at Dmitri's feet, touches his head to the ground at that moment of fury and walks out and it leaves everybody flabbergasted. Okay? Now here's my question and, and we're going to have to do this together here. When, when we're in reality, we can be outside of church. We can be visiting after a group meeting. We can be at home. And we look at people as just people moving around like people. People just being people. We're living. There's nothing artificial or nobody's carrying on a play. People are being people, yeah? When we read Dostoevsky and, and enter into the Zosima's room and watch the men engage in that argument, or before it, when they meet outside and Musov and, and Fyodor keep going at it, and then in the meeting itself, when um, Fyodor keeps making a fool of himself again and, and at length, and Mia says, keeps saying, stop it, behave, I'm going to leave, forgive him, Father. Um, 
we've got two men constantly engaging. They're in some sense the skeleton of those chapters. Even, even though when Dimitri shows up, the focus changes from, Dimit from them to Dimitri and Fyodor. Here's my question. Why does Dostoevsky spend so much time with Fyodor and Miosov? Because he's not just presenting people the way we see them in life. Everybody random, we're all apparently randomly doing what we do. Yeah? Things go on. Um, you're on the way to class and an accident happens. Something you can't come. Things happen. Life goes on, yeah? In the novel, you look at people and you watch people going on the same way. It's all random. But a, a, a writer is presenting them, right? He didn't have to present it the way he did. Yes? So he stands a little bit like God, presenting people, letting them do what they do, but he could have presented it another way. Is everybody following? Because this is going to ultimately get us to God and reality, but I, that's a ways. Right now my question is, why does he spend so much time in Musuv and Fyodor? What's he doing um, in that relationship? Um, how to put this? Is there some way in which the response on the part of people to what we say sheds a light on us? Even if we're criticizing somebody else, let's say. Or doing something like making up a story about Diderot, you know, and people are responding. Is, are, is what we, is the response that people make to what we say, does it say something about us? Um, do we learn something about them from their response to us? What is Dostoevsky doing with those two characters? Because they're major for three chapters. I can't say that strongly enough. If I said it strongly enough, tell me what he's doing with those characters. What are your responses to Fyodor? What's your response to him, truthfully? What's your response to Miyasov? The sense of oh, essentialism. But, and I'm also it is his babbling, and I'm also repelled by the the uh, um, and the educated conceit that uh, Musov uh, demonstrates by his, his. Of course, he's been to Paris. Yeah. Right. So that, all, all of that is. Yeah. Did you all share that? Are you all, do you pretty much share what? what? It's kind of different from the other characters, in certain, at least in this context, because they're, they're really extreme. Yeah, that's what I noticed. And so that's why I think we hit the in satire, because he's really going overboard. Nobody can be that depraved and that self-degrading, can they? So it, it, it's extreme. To, to, he's like the archetype of that fallen man in the society. And Yusuf is not as extreme as Fyodorov, but he's holding on to this sort of gentility without the underpinning of the Christian entertaining that could go with it. Yeah. And we're seeing his frustration. Yeah. Can you take that another step, Chuck? What does Musa reveal about himself that he's not aware of? That he's not aware of? Yeah. 
that uh, in, in a sense it's a shell, he's an appearance. He's got this idea that he's noble, he owns his land. He maintains Can you slow down? Sorry. Slow. He maintains a, uh, a certain air of nobility. He has this land. He cares about honor, but he seems unaware that it's, it's, it's a hollow sort of honor because the moral underpinnings of it aren't there. It's, it's vacuous. And he probably feels this himself, and Fyodorov just reveals it. If you look at the contrast of how someone likes to see him, who truly is magnanimous in the Christian sense. Sorry, slow down. I'm sorry. Who's magnanimous? Zosimov. Zosimov, right. I mean, he's a, right. he's a great right. soul. Right. Look how he reacts to this. Right. Perspective. You haven't said much about this, but the contrast between how Zosimov reacts to Fyodorov and how Busov is right. polar right. opposites. Yeah, yeah. If taking Chuck's and, and Michael's comments just now, who would you all say is more shallow, more hollow? Off. Why? Yeah, he, he just is. He's not. He honest. has nothing to say about himself. He's always talking about other people, I guess, and he he thinks he's perfect and good and I don't know. He, he lacks self-awareness. Yeah, he. I mean, I want to kill Theodore. If nobody else does, I'm going to do it. Just to get him to shut up. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, if I can, if just for a second here, because I couldn't, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more with Mary. Some of, I mean, people have strong feelings about Theodore, and most people hate him. I mean, he's he's depraved. He's he's just ugly to watch. Um, but here's my question. It seems to me that Theodosov um, reminds me of Hector in the Iliad. Everything he does, he does for the sake of other people, appearances. He, he fawns on other people, apologizing profusely. He wants to show how mannered he is. So what he does, he does for the sake of appearances. He's trying to keep up a facade of himself. And I thought Chuck's description of his, however you said it, a sorry? A mask. A, ma a mask? A mask. Yeah, it's a facade. In uh, C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, remember that guy at the end who was like a dwarf inside, but he worked this like oh. huge figure of a man like he was a puppeteer? Yeah. That was his image he projected to the yeah, world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Because I don't, I don't think anybody will come away from these scenes without hating Theodore. I mean, it's, it's, it, he's so intolerant. I mean, he, for a guy to Guy to keep going on with lengthy paragraphs, whole paragraphs, you know, one after the other, with fictions and stories and saying I'm a buffoon and I know it and I'm a fool and and then Zosim is saying stop lying. Um, Miso's lines are short; they're very brief, but every one of them is the is showing a um, that he lives for a facade. A, he's created a fabrication, a surface, and he does things more to keep up appearances. So. He's bringing into Russia all of these cultivated ideas to show that he's better than other people. He doesn't even want to be seen with him. Contrast Zosima's response to Fyodor to his response to Miyasov's. What's Fyodor, or Zosima's response to Fyodor? And what, does that, what light does that shed on Miyasov? Is that clear? What's Zosima's response to Fyodor, and how does it differ from Miyasov's response to Fyodor. Zosimov loves him. He says, if 
it said of him quite explicitly, the worse the man is, the greater his sin, the more he loves him. He doesn't, he doesn't bow down to Dimitri out of nothing. He sees a real danger for a man whose interior he loves. He sees the goodness in Dimitri's soul. So it's interesting to think about Manipian satire and the way Dostoevsky is playing these characters off against each other so we can see. He's not make, he, doesn't, he doesn't encourage us to judge them. What am I saying? He doesn't make, the narrator does not make judgments about them. He presents them in a way that allows us to make judgments by what they do. So we've got to read characters in their responses and what we're learning is um, the way they respond to each other throw lights on themselves and each other. Okay? We see that clearly about Zosov and Musov. Now here's my question. Is there a way in which Theodore is performing a Mentipian satire function? It's hard not to dislike him. He's so depraved. But does he, does he perform a role that nobody else in the book performs because of what he does? If so, what is it? Because he's a central figure and he's going to be killed. Should not have given that away. He's provocative. He drives people to the extremes of their character. To show who they are, to reveal themselves. Including Father Zosima, it reveals his holiness. And Musab, it reveals his shallowness. By the way, I forgot in my quick summary. After the meeting breaks up, um, there's that chapter between Rakuten, the seminarian, and, um, and uh, Alyosha. And it's there that Rakuten prophecies of violence. In the next scene that closes this first book, um, it's a scene in which um, Theodore goes to lunch with the monks and criticizes them all. He tells them they're using people, that they've taken money, they eat cabbage, they feed on people. In fact, I'm going to end with this because it's a continuation. It's Theodore, once again, doing what he does. And, and for, some for some readers, the effect that he has on them is just to make them dislike him the more. Here's real. So, are we just going to continue to grow in our dislike of him? Or are we going to learn to be like I'm not kidding. What's Dostoevsky doing? So, because there's nothing that Fyodor does that's likable. The last thing we see of him, he's looking at, he's driving off in a carriage, and he's drinking cognac and worried about his. Here, these are Fyodor's words to the monks. So this, this is now. Wait, and we. So keep this in mind as we read because we're going to learn more about the monks. But at this stage, I, I don't, my assumption is everybody reading this is going to be offended because here's this guy carrying on again, except now he's doing it to these pious people. So his wrong is even greater. Now hold on. Is it? He says, this is the narrator describing page 89. This is Theodore. Oh, you're eating all this stuff, old port wine, fact going on. Look at all these bottles the fathers have set out. <laughs> and who has provided it all? The Russian peasant, the laborer. Bring now. Remember, the peasant revolution is during this time. 
All the conflicts across Europe have to do with the lower classes wanting to overthrow the monarchies because of these disparities. Because the, the nobles live like royalty, they live off the peasants, and the peasants are all rebelling. And it's happening in Russia. And Theodore comes in, invited as a guest, to be a guest, and, and, the, and the superiors being nothing but courteous to this guy when he's going off on him. The Russia, so look at all these. <laughs> and who's provided it all? The Russian peasant, the labor, bringing you the pittance earned by his calloused hands, taking it from his family, from the needs of the state. You holy fathers are sucking the people's blood. So this man's invited to lunch. He's insulted everybody in the room. Now he goes into this luncheon gathering of monks. It's a pious group. And he's calling them out. So here's my question, and I'm going to stop now because we're all... Is Fyodor Dostoevsky, is part of his function the function of a manipian satire? That he... Remember Shakespeare's fool in Lear? Shakespeare's fool is the one who always told the truth, but never in a way that would put his life at jeopardy. Remember Lear, he would say things and... Um, anybody else who said that, Lear would have cut his head off. Because he's playing a fool. Dusk, or Theodore even calls himself like a holy fool. Does he have another function besides making us all angry at him? What's his function in the book as Dostoevsky setting him up here? Well, he does bring up the question of of, of what? Of the, the peasants versus the, the other people the yeah. monks, and, and then it took more extreme, the people who have power and right. money. And yeah. Keep in mind, because it's real, it's, to me, it's what he does with, I sort of like Fyodor, <laughs> even though, he, I mean, he's hateful. Everything he does is disgusting. But he's American. Huh? He's like an American, especially a Texas <laughs> He's so disgusting. But the interesting thing about him is that no, here's, here's the interesting thing for me. Nobody tells the truth about things in this book. Everybody's living in a fiction, everybody, except Theodore. And he doesn't do it in a way that, with love. He doesn't. But it's as, if, it's as if Dostoevsky is going beneath the appearances of people because most people live civilly by appearances. They don't say things that are going to make people angry at them. People hide. They're not honest. They, wait, wait. Uh, and revolutions take place. But here's this guy who's going in, making everybody hate him, and yet there seems to be some truth to what he says, so that one of his functions, it seems to me in the novel, is that Dostoevsky uses him to get beneath to a depth of truthfulness about the corruption and the evil that's actually going on around the world, even though he's a part of it. So he's not like Shakespeare's fool. Is everybody following? He's a disgusting, depraved, person. And yet, Dostoevsky's putting these words in his mouth, and the easiest thing to do is dismiss him as awful, hateful, except that Zosimov doesn't. So what's Dostoevsky doing? And we're, we're on the verge of this world, looking back to a tradition, middle-aged, Catholic, Christian world, we're on the threshold of the modern advent of the totalitarian state um, and Dostoevsky is taking us there to that conflict 
it's the conflict that we were introduced to with um, Melville and Hawthorne in America. Where are we now if we take a look at this book as prophetic? Don't answer it. Just keep it in mind as you're reading, okay? And remember that Bakhtin principle that every novel is a dialectic. That the conflicts going on between characters in the book address conflicts between that novel and the world outside. The Dostoevsky knows exactly what he's doing. So, and it, it's, I mean, if, you, if you think about what's going on, compare him to Melville, whom, you know whom I love. Dostoevsky gets to the depths of evil. He gets to the depths of the soul in lots of people, the depths of the darkest parts of the soul, far more than Hawthorne or, or uh, Melville. So, bring wine next week. <laughs> that, was, that was my fault. <laughs> you guys have a good